My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But you still live. You know, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome everybody. You are listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. It's hard to believe that it is already six months into the year. Here we are in June and we are launching right into summer weather up here in the mountains. It's been unseasonably warm, um, which is strange seeing as we had a pretty chilly April, Um, but we're very excited for the summer. We've got lots of great activities and programs going on um, this summer that'll still give you the opportunity to get outside and enjoy the mountains and make sure that you are able to spread out a bit. Um, Coming up here in just a few weeks, we have our first event of the summer, and that is our Native Plant Week. It's gonna be a celebration of the rich biodiversity of Appalachia. Um, We'll have demonstrators and other activities going on at the museum and virtually um, from June 7th until the 12th, um, each day from about 10 a.m. till 3 p.m. One of the virtual events that we're offering is a nature poetry workshop. So we're definitely looking at all kinds of different ways to explore the role of plants in culture and history here in the mountains. Um, And this nature poetry workshop is going to be pretty amazing. Poet Rose McClarney is going to lead this workshop for us. And Rose actually visited Foxfire a few years ago to do some research in our archives. She also is the daughter of Bill McClarney, who is the lead aquatic biologist up at Maine Spring Conservation Trust. So if you caught our episode last month with Rachel, um, she and Bill actually work directly together. So again, small little world up here in the mountains. But Rose is actually currently teaching down at Auburn. So I had the opportunity um, back in April to do a Zoom interview with Rose and she graciously agreed to do it and answered all of my many questions. And we just had a really great conversation about her work um, growing up in Western North Carolina and where she finds inspiration and um, some of her current work as well. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with her. Um, Again, please bear in mind that it was a Zoom call, and so the audio quality um, does have a little hiccups here and there. But if you miss out on anything, as always, you can head over to www.foxfire.org, head over to our podcast page, and you'll be able to read the full transcript. I'm also going to link to Rose's website, which has um, several poems that are available online if you are interested in reading her work, which I absolutely highly recommend. It is truly beautiful poetry. And if you enjoy those, I definitely recommend that you check out some of her books. So Rose's uh, collections of poems are Forage and It's Day Being Gone, and those are both from Penguin. And then she has a third book, The Always Broken Plates of Mountains, which was published by Four Ways Books. She also co-edited a literary field guide to Southern Appalachia, which is from the University of Georgia Press. Um, And this book is really incredible. It's a collection of poems and artwork, all set up almost like an encyclopedia um, about different species in the mountains and is really just a great piece to explore. 
Rose has been awarded fellowships by the McDowell Colony and Predloaf and Sewanee Writers Conferences. She has served as Dartmouth Poet in Residence at the Frost Place. She's the winner of National Poetry Series, the Chaffin Award for Achievement in Appalachian Writing, and the Fellowship of Southern Writers New Writing Award for Poetry, among many other prizes. Um, she's definitely worthy of each of these accolades, and her work has appeared in publications such as the Kenyan Review, the Southern Review, the England Review, Missouri Review, and the Oxford American. She earned her MFA up at Warren Wilson College um, in their program for writers, but she, as I said, is currently the Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Auburn University. Again, I hope you enjoy this conversation, and um, again, head on over to our blog if you're interested in learning more about Rose. Hi, I'm Rose McClarney and I am currently living in the Hamilton uh, Pine Mountain area of Georgia and teaching at Auburn University where I'm Associate Professor of Creative Writing and Poetry. Um, and I also edit the Southern Humanities Review there along with my colleagues. And, um, I'm originally from Western North Carolina. I grew up in, in Macon County, Franklin area, um, and then I spent a lot of my some of my 30s in Madison County. Um, I owned property there for a while, which sadly I no longer own, but you will definitely see the influence of that place in my poetry. My now husband and I did a, a writing residency on the Rogue River in Oregon. So that was um, completely off-grid. And a lot of the people who do that residency um, stayed for the months when they can drive in and out. It's still, you know, something of an undertaking, but uh, we stayed through the winter and after the snow fell on the passes there, if you wanted um, in or out, you had to hike. Uh, but yeah, throughout the year it was, um, there was no electricity. So uh, that was an interesting experience, but it was not, certainly not the first time for me because if you know, if you've talked with my dad, uh, he works in Central America. And so I spent part of every year of my childhood without electricity, so because. <laughs> Get used to it. You went down there every year as a kid even? What was the duration of your stays down there? Um, usually about two months. He stays a lot longer, but my mom and I would go for a while. They would unenroll me from school and my teachers, because it was a small school, they would let me borrow my textbooks and I would keep up with the assignments. And then my parent, my mom would bring me back and re-enroll me. So. <laughs> <laughs> and she could only stay away from the cats in her garden for so long, but two months was, you know, Place, especially going back to the same place um, year after year, local people knew me and had seen me grown up and stuff. So, good yeah, experience. That's awesome. That's a cool experience to have as a kid. I don't think a lot of people get that as a child. So that's really awesome. So, what are what were some of your favorite childhood memories? Just either here or in Central America? Anything that really influenced you growing up? Okay, I think I'll I'll start we're talking about the Western North Carolina region because that's where I did spend most of my life. Um, well, my family didn't have a lot of land. It's just about 14 acres, but the way that it is set uh, and the surrounding land is, at least for now, um, not developed. So I always felt like our little cove was very um, separate from the rest of the world. Um, and, and so, I think I just liked living in that very particular place and, you know, in a long dirt road, but it felt much farther. And just having a very uh, quiet childhood. Um, I'm an only child. 
my mom work, works primarily on taking care of the house and land and her gardens and my dad would often work from home. So we just had a very quiet little uh, world there that was very much based on knowing the, the particulars of, of that place. So I think my favorite childhood memories have to do with um, almost all <laughs> within that sort of 14 acres. Uh, so just swimming in the in the little Tennessee River that runs by our house or um, making houses out of hay bales in, in the hay field or um, not very much help to my mom in the garden probably but I have lots of pleasant memories of, of sitting out there with her and I don't know eating all the blueberries and probably lots of just walking through the woods with my cats I know it made more sense if it was a dog but that I had cats they we would just go you know hide out in the road together for a while so um, yeah maybe not really I guess I'm not coming up with really dramatic memories but that that's what my childhood was like um did, yeah my dad would always you know be pointing out which butterflies were showing up that year and if they were the same number size as usual and my mom would always you know, point out plants to me as they were coming up so i think that was good poetic preparation um even though i didn't know it at the time <laughs> yeah definitely that's awesome um, so when, when and what inspired you to start writing poetry? So obviously these were some of the really early influences, but was there a moment where you decided that you wanted to pursue it or that did it just always come naturally? Well, um, I mean, I guess I had, I had all done some sort of writing for a long time, but pursuing it, yeah, that's a separate question. I guess, um, in a way, my mom, again, credit to her, had encouraged me to do creative writing projects of various kinds when I was little. Um, I'm not sure quite how she picked up that that would be the thing for me to do, but she was right, of course. Um, but I didn't really pursue creative writing as the idea would be my main vocation uh, for quite some time. I took some creative writing classes as an undergraduate, but I wasn't a creative writing major. I just, I didn't, I guess my idea at the time was that it wasn't practical. And so it wasn't until after I had graduated um, and gone on to have jobs, you know, job jobs, <laughs> wearing suit coats sometimes, and anyways, writing PR, <laughs> various things. And I moved to Madison County, um, just kind of not an entirely rational decision, but I've been living in downtown Asheville, and there are lots of great things to do there, but I... Um, I just realized sort of suddenly that I needed to get back to a rural place and so I just moved to Madison County without really knowing anything about anyone there and so it was being back out in that rural setting suddenly without <laughs> a whole lot I was doing anymore and uh, that made me start writing again so I just wrote there for a couple of years before I decided to apply to um, MFA programs um, and yeah I think I just saw it as a way to keep my brain active while I was doing my jobs, which were different things. Um, but then I uh, decided to send out work to some literary magazines and I got rejected because that's what happens. But I didn't know that because nobody <laughs> told me that yet. Uh, and, uh, and then so I decided I'd send out some more journals. And if I got rejected from those, then I needed to go and get an MFA. And if I look 
had the quality of the journals that rejected me, they would probably still reject me. So it was a, I kind of set myself up <laughs> with that. Uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't realize it, but so I, I got rejected from more journals and then I decided to apply to MFAs and I uh, applied to the one at Warren Wilson College um, because it's, at the time certainly was considered to be one of the best, um, not because it was nearby. <laughs> it was a little residency program, so it, it, I could have lived anywhere. But when I got into that one, it was the one that I was most excited about. Um, I'm a big admirer of Ellen, the poet Ellen Bryant Voigt, and she, I don't know, she followed me. Her voice was on my message, my answering machine. And so after I got into the MFA program, it came, you know, clearer to me that the writing was something I was really going to devote myself to rather than just a hobby. That's awesome. What was your undergraduate in? Um, well, I also got my undergraduate degree at Warren Wilson College. Um, the MFA program and the undergraduate program are not really connected. Um, so I, one of the few students, at least then, who had done that, um, kind of coincidence, but I don't know if they offered this major anymore, but they just had a humanities major where you kind of built your own. And so I took a lot of anthropology and philosophy classes. I really liked philosophy classes. I, my thought at the time, at least, was that I would just take classes that taught me how to observe things, and um, then I would figure out what I was going to do with all this later. <laughs> I feel like that's the challenge for most of us who go through the humanities. You take what you're interested in and then hope it falls into place. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, then, so then what led you to teaching? What, what led you to that career? Um, again, I did not intend to do that. Um, I've always loved academics and being in school, um, but I was not a student who was very brave. I didn't tended not to speak in class, I just shy. Um, and so teaching would, standing in front of the classroom would not have <laughs> hurt me. Uh, but at the end of my MFA program, my, uh, one of my wonderful teachers and supporters, uh, Deb Alberry, suggested that I apply for a fellowship that they offer, which is a teaching fellowship. Um, so you, they sort of teach you how to teach at Warren Wilson. Uh, and because I respected her, and I would just sort of do whatever she said. And so I applied and I got it. And then I had to teach and I had another job. I was, uh, had been in thinking I would just write on the side of doing other work. I worked at the Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Project at the time. And then all of a sudden, I was like, well, I've been working for nonprofits. Am I going to leave this line of work for a one-year teaching position? And then, well, yes, <laughs> I did. And, you know, the academic job market is not easy. And so I didn't know if I would find another college level teaching job that was decent after that or not. But one, you know, there was a lot of moving around and knowing the fingernails that, that took place. But I, but I have always managed to stay employed at teaching since then. So that's lucky. Wow, that's awesome. I know, I know you mentioned this in, again, some of the interviews I was able to read. Um, and then also just in your poetry, there's, there's a very strong theme of landscape and also, um, culture and landscape and I was just wondering if you would be willing to speak about that and um, how you see your connection to the landscape, what role the landscape plays in your own life and your writing. 
Um, I've said this before, um, probably encountered it in other interviews, but it just sort of a, a starting point for me is I do think that mountains or specifically the Appalachian mountains are a big aesthetic influence because even before I knew I wanted to be a writer or even that I was particularly interested in poetry, they're, they're there all the time. You know, there's something like sort of beautiful that you can look up to despite whatever you're in at the moment. Maybe you're in the English parking lot, but you can still look up and, and see them. You know? um, and so that has always seemed like a kind of art, whatever the artistic mindset <laughs> is, it seems like the, the mountains uh, had to be sort of inspiring for, for the formation of mine, and particularly the Appalachian Mountains, because they're sort of subtle mountains, um, worn down, not, um, not as overstated as some of the uh, <laughs> higher peaks. And that, to me, is a particularly good model for poetry, because at least the poetry that I like deals a lot in, in subtlety and in, in direction. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the basic influence of, of landscape, but um, as I've gone on and written poems and then books and then tried to write different books, uh, I think engaging with different aspects of landscape has been important for me. Um, so my first book was very much inspired by uh, Madison County where I was living, a lot of the old farmscapes there, so mountains, but where you could see at least efforts at uh, settlement and agriculture um, that, that I guess were old enough <laughs> or uh, to be romantic or, you know, we're, so, we're not so clearly winning over the landscape uh, that, that, uh, I, that they were unattractive to me. So there's a lot of that very particular area of the mountains in my first book. And then in my second book, um, I drafted a lot of the material in here when I was still living in Western North Carolina, but then this book was really came together when I was living in Oregon for that um, writing residency. And then I think I made the final changes to it when I had moved for a teaching job in Oklahoma, uh, which was a very different landscape. So landscape is in there as a subject matter. Um, as I try to write about the a little bit try to write about the different places I go because I do think it's our responsibility to remain interested in whatever landscape we find ourselves in, even if it's not, even if it's not, you know, the one I think is mine. Um, so you can see some efforts to write about diff different landscapes. But aside from that, um, I think that the changing landscape just sort of provided the underlying atmosphere of the book, uh, dealing with those changes is what informs yeah, the overall tone of, of those poems, which is one that deals with ideas of, you know, loss and, and change of various kinds. And then my uh, forage, my most recent book, I moved to um, the Deep South. I was in Alabama for most of the writing of this book. And there are also some Oklahoma poems in here too. So that comes into it, certainly trying to understand how the that Deep South landscape is, um, Again, illustrates some of the human history as well as well as the natural history. For instance, some of the you know the legacy of having been um, exploited for cotton plantations certainly relates to the human experience in that uh, 
area too. So yeah, landscape provides some of the direct imagery you see in the poems, but then also sets the tone underneath them. Sure. Um, and this is, you know, this is just because you mentioned it, I didn't think of it till now, but um, having moved out of Appalachia and just coincidentally going to Oklahoma, did you at all reflect on um, the Cherokee experience and that removal process? Did that, I mean, I, I don't know if you wrote about it or if you thought about it or I'm just, you know, it's, it's coincidental. Um, it's something I was very aware of because um, while, you know, the way in which I was displaced bears no relation to the uh, significance of the, the way in which Cherokee were displaced, uh, I did, as I was sort of in this new play area and feeling quite lost, um, so many place names there are Cherokee and familiar, even place names that you might see around here. Um, so even, you know, highway signs and things, I would suddenly just see a word and think, oh. Um, and so I'm certainly aware of that. Um, I haven't written a whole lot about it just because um, I guess I, I feel like there are some subjects I'm willing to research and write about as best I can. And there's some that seem maybe beyond, beyond my purview too much um, until I really, really had time to do some more serious scholarship <laughs> around uh, Cherokee culture. But it is something that I have been reading about, um, less in relation to Oklahoma than um, in Macon County. There's been a lot of, uh, well, there was some controversy about the the Nequasi Mound in Franklin that was, um, I couldn't help fall in. But then there's also their new um, Cherokee heritage sites and displays and things going up around the area right where I grew up. So I've watched that with interest. So it's definitely, it's definitely something I am aware of and something I'm trying to be more aware of actually in poems that um, I'm working on for my next book in that um, I've sort of noticed that some of my first work talks about settlers and people in remote areas of Appalachia in a way that doesn't really acknowledge that there were people there before them. <laughs> some of the phrases, I'm like, mm -hmm. so, you know, moving, looking ahead, I want to kind of question a little of my own tendency to uh, romanticize some of those the first white people, I guess. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing to do, um, and it's something that you know we're trying to even correct at our at the museum. You know, we've been working really closely with the Museum of the Cherokee Indian, and it's definitely constantly like re rewiring <laughs> your brain. You know, to like step back and think from a different perspective. So I was just curious. I just thought it was an interesting coincidence. Um, yeah, but I just to follow up on what you just said, it is a sort of rewiring your brain because I thought, well, a lot of it is just the way the stories I've been told or read or, or phrased, and it's just a received sort of way of thinking. But on the other hand, then I talk about my, my own family's heritage. We are not really from Western North Carolina. I mean, it's sort of unclear where we're from, but we are not one of those long-rooted families um, so <laughs> I sort of have to think about that. I think I 
even the stories I've received, I, I could be a little skeptical of since I have mostly learned about Western North Carolina heritage, um, you know, in my 20s on. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, I don't even have that much claim to the, uh, <laughs> the Caucasian history of the place, but I'm interested. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been an interesting experience for me because I'm from St. Louis, you know, oh. <laughs> more recent immigrants, you know, German family with a bunch of mixture in the past. Um, and definitely just in the Midwest, I think, because it's so transient, like, there's not this like rooted connection. To the there's not like the sense of belonging, the sense of claim to a place and having come here and having to try to understand that um, was, was just a challenge at first. And then to understand that, you know, the people who consider themselves to be from here are like centuries <laughs> old <laughs> lineages. So, um, you know, they still consider people who are maybe, maybe the second of their family to be born here to be newcomers, which is interesting. So, right. That's something that I thought when I was younger, you know, in high school, I was not, I, I mean, it never occurred to me that I would want to be more local because clearly the people who were the real local families had been there for generations and it wasn't me. And I wasn't sure where I was supposed to be from because it's the only place I'd ever lived, but I knew, I knew I wasn't really local. And then I moved to, when I moved to Madison County and they were, grew up in Macon County, it's like, well, that's too far away. That doesn't count. So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about um, how much deeper some people's ties are in the area, even though I very much get identified as an Appalachian writer and I'm happy to write about this material. I do feel a little, um, yeah, a little bit of an imposter. Do you identify as Appalachian? I mean, you said you're, you call yourself an Appalachian writer, but do you personally identify as an Appalachian then? Well, I, I think so. Um, I think I was a little hesitant to do it because I, at first, but the only time anybody bothered to try to identify me one way or another was as a writer. So I can see that, especially with my first book being very much about the mountains, that that, that made sense. And if um, I have a little hesitancy about categorizing writing in general, because especially with regional categorizations, sometimes if you say somebody's a whatever writer, and honestly, usually it's Southern writer because other regions just don't seem to get identified with specific literature as much. If you say that somebody's a regional writer, sometimes it establishes an expectation that it's going to be, the writing is going to fit within certain stereotypes and, um, and perhaps won't have anything to offer people who are not of that region. And so I was definitely hesitant to say I'm a Southern writer or I'm an Appalachian writer at first, but then I realized, well, you know, this really is your subject matter. So there's no, like, there's no sidestepping that. And also, for me, I've yet to really encounter a downside of it. I found that a lot of readers are really um, supportive just because they think of me as an Appalachian writer and they're Appalachian writers or just Appalachian readers. And I think, yeah, there's a sort of loyalty to figure out, you know, what I'm going to write next or um, even people who wouldn't normally read poetry, maybe because it's Appalachian poetry and you know they read Appalachian fiction or something that, or Appalachian history they'll give it a go so for me it yeah I'm happy to be an Appalachian writer um now <laughs> that I see uh how it's really for me been more of a way to connect with people than to limit sure. the people who are reading the work um so what, what does that identity mean to you? What do you, what do you think it means to be Appalachian? Hmm. 
Well, I, <laughs> it means to have lived for at least a while in some formative way in uh, the Appalachian Mountains, I know, which is even hard to find a definition of that that everyone agrees on. And it is something, what is Appalachia is something I had to do some thinking about when I edited um, the book, A Literary Field Guide to Southern Appalachia, uh, because we're editing this book and we're going to solicit work from poets in Southern Appalachia was in the title. Uh, but there are so many different definitions of Appalachia. Um, and we ended up using our book, one that was from um, John C. Campbell, that was pretty untidy. Because um, if you just if you define Appalachia by state boundaries, then you clearly know who's in and who's out. But that doesn't work because you know the far end of North Carolina is it's not Appalachian. You know, um, <laughs> so he has these this sort of descriptive uh, long strip along the country that goes uh, up through Virginia and it just barely dipped down into Alabama, which is where I was living at the time. So that was helpful. Um, but uh, his description is very much based on um, ecosystems and I think probably culture plays some part in it as well. So for me, that's still the, um, the definition I'm working with, um, sort of, a, yeah, an, an ecological understanding rather than any sort of, um, state boundary. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what's, what's one lesson that you like to make sure all of your students leave with? Is there some, something as a teacher that you hope to share with each student that comes in your classroom? I think the main things that I think poetry can teach students, even if they're not going to go on to, you know, publish lots of books and into the academic world. Uh, I think that the, the creative writing in general can teach a kind of empathy um, because you're trying to think about the audience that you're going to be communicating to and how to make them understand what you understand. And you also have to imagine your way into the point of view of your characters or your speaker in a poem who's probably not completely you. So I think that that sort of empathetic engagement is, is a good thing that almost anyone can get out of creative writing. Um, and then just observation, particularly with poetry, um, and specificity of observation. So you don't want, you're not going to have a very exciting poem if you just have trees with green leaves, but if you learn to really look and, you know, describe the texture of the leaves, find the particular name of the tree, just to give one example, that sort of, yeah, way of, um, accruing details, I think, is really a good habit to have, whether or not you're putting it in poems, but certainly helps with poems. And then I think the last thing is um, revision, just ethic that is required to refine a poem um, and come back to it and revise it again and then again. Sure, sure. As with any good piece of writing or good project, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always think that's the most humbling moment where you have to go back and accept that it's nowhere close to being done. So <laughs> those are great. Those are great. Um, yeah, I just, I'm really struck by your power of observation. I'm just assuming that came from, you know, the guidance of your parents teaching you to look at the world in a different way. I think that's something that a lot of people don't get, but 
and to me it just hits home the fact that we need you know an interdisciplinary approach to to different um crafts for sure so yeah um for anyone who's interested i guess i did have the advantage of parents who taught me to observe that stuff but i also try to take notes regularly just whatever it is that you're trying to pay attention to if you make yourself write it down even if you think you don't need to write it down then you're much more likely to articulate observations yeah that sounds like a good project just a good exercise i am looking at returning a bit more to mountain material um, i wanted to write about the environments i was in um in my last book which were not always the mountains but i'm going to revisit some of my actually my childhood material um and kind of look at the ways that some of my views may have been romanticized and also look at some of the ways that the stories I was first learned about the area tended to foreground uh, male figures and try to think about, even in my own childhood memories, you know, the girls I went to elementary school with, <laughs> their stories. Um, drawing out some of that stuff is part of what I'm thinking about, along with the more historic material like the recipes. Very interesting. Uh, what poems would you recommend people read if they get a real feel for your work? Well, uh, in Forage, which is my most recent book, there are a few poems that are dealing with Appalachia, so I'll point those out. There's one in here that's called Before the First Bell and Who Stays and Return Visit. Those are the, yeah, the most Appalachian in their setting, but I think some of my favorites in this book. Um, the next to last piece in Forage is Fresh Tracks, and it is about Koi Wolf, which is a wolf-coyote-dog hybrid that actually lives in urban areas. And so that's a poem that I really like because it's about a creature who can survive in all sorts of places, and I guess I identified with that as a, as a, as I mentioned before, Appalachian person who's out of place or is felt out of place at times. Well, I would say that maybe most representative of my work, um, people will be able to find this easily online. It's the title's After the Removal of 30 Types of Plants and Animals from the Junior Dictionary. So it's a sort of conservation-based poem. Um, that's, that's pretty representative of the work in here. And for poems that are, again, specific, more specifically Appalachian, almost everything in my previous two books is regional, but um, Facing North is the first poem in its day being gone. And that was another one that uh, I guess I've, that my students have particularly liked. So. Well, awesome. I think that's, like I said, all the questions I have really, really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, I just look forward to reading more of your poetry, honestly, at this point. Thank you so much to Rose for doing this podcast with me and to you for taking the time to listen. As always, make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, leave us a rating, share with a friend. All of these things help new listeners uh, find our podcast. Um, if you are again interested in learning more about Rose, if you need the transcript from today, if you want to check out her books, 
As always, head over to our website, www.foxfire.org. You'll be able to find all of that on our podcast page. And if you're interested in attending Rose's workshop, you can register for that again through our event page. It's by donation. If you head to our website and drop down to events, you'll find the listing of all of our Native Plant Week's events. The complete schedule will be there, as well as a link to our Eventbrite um, where you can sign up for Rose's workshop. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>